Hi, this is Luke. And I'm Ben. We're from Thunder, and we're on The Rock Show with Andy Fox on GTFM. Here's a track from Thunder.
Welcome back to The Rock Show with me, Andy Fox, here on GTFM. Now then, Thunder, formed in 1989 by Luke Morley and Danny Bowes, uh, released their debut album Backstreet Symphony in 1990. It was a top 20 success with several hit singles and a triumphant appearance at the Monsters of Rock in Donington in 1990. From 1990 to 2000, they toured the world, released several albums, but bowed out in 2000. After a reformation in 2002 with another four releases, they announced another farewell in 2009, but were tempted back into action in 2011, playing Download, Vacan, High Voltage, and released their first album in seven years, Wonder Days, which went top 10 in 2015. 2017's Rip It Up did even better, going top three, and last year's delayed album, All The Right Noises, repeated the success. Now, despite Thunder having uh, all touring plans cancelled due to the pandemic, they took that time out to write and record album number 14, called Dopamine, uh, released last week, and it's set for another top 10 album. I recently caught up with the one and only Danny Bowes via Zoom and asked, firstly, about the recent chart success of the last few albums. Maybe, maybe... Maybe records aren't selling very well anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's been um, it's been incredible actually since Wonder Days. I'll be absolutely honest with you. Um, Luke's been on a real creative purple patch, and I think the fact that he can keep writing these tunes and surprising everybody, including me. Bear in mind, you know, I mean. I've been singing these songs for 30 years plus, you know, even longer than that, actually, if you go back to the previous bands. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he can still surprise me after all this time, uh, to me, is is a miracle. It's a revelation. So how come, after a short while, after all the right noises, you got back into writing and recording this new album? Well, I think if you actually go back to all the right noises, I mean, we finished it um, six months before it was supposed to be released. And because of the pandemic, that added another six months on. So we sat on it for a year before it actually came out. And because we couldn't really go anywhere or do anything, Luke being Luke, he just wrote songs and just kept writing songs. And it was always our intention because we knew we weren't going to be able to tour with all the right noises. It was always our intention to get back into the studio Um relatively quickly but he just I think he just felt really restless I think the problem is if you're trapped at home um, it was the same for everyone we were all trapped at home but he likes to make a record he likes to go out on the road he likes to play it live and he likes to see the whites of the audience's eyes while he's delivering those tunes Mm. and the fact that he couldn't do that I think made him very restless, and so he he just said, "I'm, I, let's get back in the studio." You know, irrespective of when we release it, let's just go back in and keep recording. So within two months, I think it was last May, we were back in the studio for mm. for the first session for this album. He'd already written some of the tunes in that year between finishing all the right noises and releasing it. Yeah, yeah. So. I think this, the first part of last year, he probably had about five or six tunes already written. Cool. And then he just accelerated that. Uh, I think we recorded something like seven or eight tunes in May. 
and the rest of the tunes for this album we recorded in September. I mean, he was just, he was, he was a man possessed. <laughs> now, the album is Dopamine, a feel-good hormone, it says here, main chemical of pleasure produced in the brain, and the subject matter deals with social media, the impact it has on people's lives, especially young people. The actual neurotransmitter itself is released by the brain in anticipation of pleasure. So that can be pleasure derived from any number of sources, you know. Uh, the problem is it's a what I call a seesaw drug. So when you get it, it's very, very good, but then it wears off. So then you need to get it again. And I think if you are a thrill seeker or, you or you're an alcoholic or... Um, you like food or shopping or or whatever it is you know that dopamine chemical is released in your brain in anticipation of that thing that you're after yeah. and i think a lot of people get it and have got it more and more over the last couple of years due to the pandemic from their phones and oh, i think right. it's complete i think it's completely understandable because you know if you can't go out then you look to bring the world in and the best way to do that is via social media. I mean, we are old. So we see social media as a very different thing to younger people. You know, a lot of people feel validated by social media. They, that's where they get their self-worth from. You know, me personally, I get out of bed. I crawl downstairs to get myself a cup of tea and a paper. You know, that's me in the morning. The last me, thing I want to do is reach for my phone. I mean. and see if anybody likes what I did last night you know I don't care what they had for breakfast and I'm bloody sure they don't care what I had <laughs> you know what I mean yeah. but it's just but but younger people see it differently and it's and I, and I do think it's a cause for concern certainly um, I think the world is going to have to adjust to the kind of mental health issues that are going to be created because we are sowing not necessarily happy seeds here
album is released as a double album, which is pretty unusual these days. You were obviously very productive, 16 songs in total. That's a bit old school, isn't it, our era? Absolutely, yeah. And for us, it was just as significant a move as that. You know, when people made double albums, they it tended to be a big event. Certainly for us, you know, as kids. And what what those albums represented was sometimes, in a lot of cases, a shift in the parameters of, of the music. You know, a double album gives you the ability to explore areas that you wouldn't necessarily go into within the confines of a single album. Mm-hmm. And we didn't make a double album deliberately. We didn't set out to make a double album. But we realized after we'd written 20 songs and we recorded them all, we probably got about 75% through the recording process. And we were sitting there over breakfast one day in the studio. And I said to Luke, we're gonna have a right old job trying to decide which of these songs we're not gonna put on a record, aren't we? Because if we make a single album, we're gonna have to lose eight or nine songs. Hmm. How are we gonna do that? Because these songs are good. It's almost like, the slightly kind of left of center or right of center songs, stuff that you wouldn't normally consider to be standard thunder material. Those ones were very much kind of elbowing themselves to the to the front, almost like pushing all the traditional tunes out of the way. And we found it quite interesting that we struggled to kind of push those songs to the side. And as the album went on, it became more and more apparent that we were going to have a problem. So in the end, it was like a double album crept up on us, you know, because we just said, well, if it's going to be a, such a problem to get rid of eight or nine songs, maybe we should just call it a double album and only get rid of three or four. <laughs> it just makes life easier. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and the tunes chose themselves, you know. So, you know, when we told the record company, they had a little mini heart attack, but, you know, that's what they're there for, isn't it? Pretty much all of those certainly double studio albums they've you know they've pushed the envelope ever so slightly creatively and I think that's what we've done on this record I think there's going to be some uh, there's going to be some people who are uh, surprised by some of the material on the record well that's the thing this album is probably your most varied there are songs that are what I would call typical thunder but there are some that are very what I would call left field well that's that's kind of how they made their way onto the record, you know. He just kept writing songs. He wasn't concerned about what kind of an album it was because we never are. We always work on the assumption we'll just record everything he writes unless, of course, we think it's crap. And and that doesn't happen very often, hmm. but it does happen. Um, and then we choose afterwards which ones because the songs tend to choose themselves. But in this particular instance... Um, the slightly kind of weirder material uh, was so strong we couldn't we couldn't deny it a place. So, like I say, it crept up on us, and we ended up making a double album by default. Yeah. But you know, we're we're perfectly happy with it. As I think I've said this to you before, we you know we recognised before we made the Wonder Days album that we probably had more years behind us than we had in front, and we don't know whether each record we make is going to end up being the last one because we're all getting on a bit now, you know. I don't want to get all kind of maudlin and miserable, but we have to recognise we're at an age where, you know, something bad could happen. So we have to... We genuinely feel very kind of um, determined that if we make a record and it ends up being our last one, 
we have, for whatever reason, we have to be able to look back at it and say, okay, we did all right there. Mm. I can I can take that being the last one. And that's, but that means that creatively there's an urgency, you know, there's a lot of, lot of exploration still needed, you know, um, mm. and we, and we want to do it. I hear the silence screaming down these empty streets. Echoes of the life that was fading out of reach. Heavy clouds are crying for the world below. But as sure as the sun returns, there's one thing that I know.
Let's talk about the tracks then. Um, we've heard the singles Western Sky, Dancing in the Sunshine and the latest single Across the Nation. Now, One Day Will Be Free Again is very strong, very t- typical thunder. About the lockdown, perhaps? Started out that way. Started out that way. And I think um, the addition of the girls yeah. doing their kind of Supremes impersonation suddenly turned it into this kind of almost like evangelical kind of Motown kind of emancipation type song. So suddenly we started thinking, well, this could be about, you know, any kind of freedom. You know, it could be people who are locked up, oppressed, you know, not just people suffering, you know, from the effects of, of being locked in because of a pandemic. Those, those, those girls are taking on a life of their own, aren't they? All the backing vocals of the girls. They make they make a massive difference. Uh, it just it just brings the songs alive in a completely different way than than it would be if we did the vocals ourselves. It's not just the girls, but Sam, who plays keys for us now, um, he also has a fantastic soulful singing voice. So when you stick them all in the room, you know, all of us actually, Luke, me, the girls, and Sam, it it does make a a, a very very good noise, and it, and it's a very different sort of noise. I think we've got the I think we've, we're kind of very taken with that sound and, and what we can do with it. We've talked many times before and you've always said that the slow ones are a bit of a challenge. Uh, Unraveling is a simple acoustic type ballad, but with a great hook, a great solo, and I have to say, Danny, a great vocal performance. I think for me, this is my favourite song on the record. And one of mine. And for me, it's... Um, it's, I think it's the restraint. It's the fact that everybody puts in a fantastic performance, but there's, it's completely controlled all the way through. It'd be very easy to go over the top with the singing, um, with the playing, with the guitars, with the drums, everything about it. It's just incredibly restrained. It's a beautiful song. And I think we really captured it well. For me, I couldn't have sung that song 10 years ago no or even 5 years ago I couldn't have sung that song going through the the misery that I went through on I'll Be The One on All The Right Noises I had to sing that song three different times on three separate occasions and each time I got it a bit closer to being finished um, and felt like I'd kind of got closer to, to doing the song justice I don't normally feel like that you know you give me a rock song I'll get in a room shout my head off half an hour later it's done you know, it doesn't. That's not a problem. You do them in your sleep, really, don't you? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm 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 really good at singing loud. You know, I'm just I'm just not very good at singing quiet. So, so it's always a bit more of a struggle for me. But going through the process with I'll be the one, I learned a lot about what I'm capable of, what I've got to do, when I need to kind of ease off, where all my sensitive bits are. You know. It's a fascinating thing, the human voice. It mm. really is. It's an incredible mechanism. And I'm still learning how mine works. And even after all these years, I'm still learning. And that, for me, is part of what's so fascinating about doing it. I can't sleep, it's 4 a.m. The walls are closing in once more. Cold house, soulless room. No trace of you here anymore 
Uh, Big Pink Supermoon takes us back to the Steely Dan vibe. I know you're fans of them. All swing and sax solo outro. It's the most different track from Thunder, I think, ever. Yeah. Well, I think he's threatened to do it a few times over the years, but I think, you know, I think when you're in a rock band and your band's called Thunder, people expect a certain thing from you. You know, we've been doing it 30 years now, and I think the confidence over the last few albums has grown and grown and grown and I think Lucas felt like he can do more wants to do more and with the success of recent albums I think he feels that he's got the confidence to do more you know and I'm always saying yes yes more 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 you know the other guys in the band go oh blimey uh, do you think people might think this is too different I said I don't think they will you know, I really don't think... It, it sounds like me singing it. It sounds like Luke playing guitar, Harry playing the drums. They'll know it's us. It might be a bit weird, 
But unless we go into like reggae jazz fusion, I can't really see people thinking it's too weird. Yeah. And you don't and care, you don't anyway, care do you? anyway, do you? No, I, I genuinely don't. I just, I, I work on the assumption if it's a good tune it's and good we tune. do it justice, people yeah. will probably yeah. get it. I mean, we're yeah. very lucky. We've got a very loyal audience who trust us to deliver the music. They trust us to deliver good tunes. And I think that gives you the confidence to, you know, to kind of take them on a journey. And I think we're very lucky. Another one I love is one of my favourites is I Don't Believe the World. It's dark and moody and I love the backing vocals there again. It's almost uh, cinematic. Yeah. It's, it's like straight out of, it's like straight out of Pink Floyd, that, isn't it? That, yeah. Backing yeah. Vocals. yeah. And it's, and it's it's cinematic, it's cinematic almost. almost. Sure, it's a big tune. If you think about it, you know, you've taken like a hip hop drum feel. The rhythm is hip hop, you know. Yeah. You yeah. stick a big old piano on there. It's very dramatic. It gets huge. You got the Pink Floyd backing vocals going on at the end. It's and it could have been written about a bass player. It's written through the eyes of a conspiracy theorist. You know, somebody who doesn't believe we landed on the moon. Somebody who believes that, you know, Marilyn Monroe was killed for a reason, you know, and all of that kind of stuff. You know, Luke put himself in the mind of our bass player. He loves, Chris, he loves a conspiracy theory. Absolutely subscribes to all of them. Really? You name it, he believes it. And uh, it makes us die laughing. So uh, when Luke wrote the song, I thought he must have written this about Chris. But he, he swears blind he didn't. I <laughs> think he's lying. <laughs> Is there anybody out there? And that's another favourite. Uh, Lucas said he changed it around. He originally wrote it on guitar, but he changed it to piano. He did. He did. He played it on guitar, recorded a demo, listened to it, listened to it, listened to it, hated it, couldn't work out why it wasn't working. Never presented it to the band. And then one day he revisited the song thinking, I can't think why this doesn't work. It's good melody, good words, good feel, good everything. Why isn't it working? So then one day he just sat down and played it on the piano. He's not the world's best piano player, but he played it. And straight away he thought, that's it. That's how, that's how it should be played, not on a guitar. So, so then he took it to the, to the extreme. And if you actually listen to it, it's just a piano and a vocal. And every now and again, there's a tambourine about halfway through the song, mm. you know? I think that's Harry just frustrated that he wasn't doing anything. You know? <laughs> Felt useless. So, you know, he needed to get in there and do something. And but it's 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 a problem about as Elton John as we've ever got. Yeah, Sam broke the piano. Um there's a Bosendorfer, which is very famous piano at Rockfield. It was bought in nineteen seventy five and Freddie Mercury played Bohemian Rhapsody on it. Right. So it's right. super famous. Now that piano was bought new in 1975 and they'd never changed the strings on that piano oh. until Sam played I Don't Believe the World. And when he played that song, there's a big, there's a, like a big low E, he hits it. And when he did it, a string broke. Oh, but no. weirdly, he thought the sound of it in his headphones, he felt a shelf had fallen off the wall. And I was in the back of the control room listening and I thought Ben had sneezed because he was sitting next to me. <laughs> and Luke and Nick, the, en the engineer, were sitting at the desk and they thought another thing had happened. We all heard something different. Got to the end of the song and we couldn't work out what had happened. And 
once we discovered the string had broken, we told the studio manager, who virtually burst into tears and said, you've broken Freddie's piano. <laughs> and um, weirdly, we kept the sound of the string breaking. If you listen to the beginning of the song, there's this kind of reverse thing where it goes, yep, and the song starts. That's the sound of the piano string breaking, but in reverse. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. We added it on afterwards. Nothing wasted, you see. <laughs> See
with so many new songs, I guess it's going to be difficult to write a set list for the upcoming tour because, of course, it includes all the right noises as well as the new record. Playing five dates, starting in Glasgow and playing right across the country, including Cardiff Motorpoint. Not me, Luke. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I absolve myself of any any responsibility there when I realised what was going on. But you've got, think, you've got all the right, all noises, right noises and this, and album, this album to, to, yeah. put in. to put in. Yeah, very hard. But, you know, you have to also recognise that there's a whole bunch of people who bought tickets for this thing before either of those albums were released. Of course. So there's going to be an element within the audience who want to hear the old tunes, you know, and, and they should. You know, they have every right to do it. They spent their money. So so they should listen to some of the old tunes as well. We always want to play the new ones. Of course. We've never really been in a position where we want to play the new ones and the nearly new ones before. But, <laughs> you know, we will have to um, find a way to do that. I mean, I have told Luke, you know, please don't make it a six-hour set. Otherwise, I will die after the first gig and everybody will want their money back after that. <laughs> So, uh, you know, we shall see how we get on. But I think, you know, he, that's a task that um, I'm sure he's relishing. Yeah. <laughs> and these ones are great to play. So, but then the old ones are great to play. So, you know, of course, it's, of course. I think you just got to get the balance right between kind of saying, hello, we've got a new record. And this was one that got away. And here's a whole bunch of here that, you know, we all know and love from way back. You know, yeah. so yeah. I think, you know, it's a good problem to have, Andy. Yeah. Cool. I think the problem... I mean, five arena gigs in the UK, that's plenty for us. You know, I know that they've been a long time coming and they feel a bit like an, an itch we need to scratch, you know, finally. You know, it's been itching away there for like two, two and a half years. So we really need to get them done out the way. Um, then we'll do the festival shows in the summer. And then to be honest, I think we'd quite like to put our feet up for a little while. You know, have a nice summer. You know, uh, got loads of things I want to do. I haven't had a chance to do them over the last few years, so I think it'll be quite nice to to be not making another record <laughs> because well, that's, that's that's what we feel like we've only been doing for the last two years, really. Now then, since I've been talking to people, especially during lockdown on this Zoom thing, um, and people who have a long career, I've been asking them about their highs and lows in their um, career in music. So uh, now it's your turn. I think I think all of our real big extreme highs and lows happened at the beginning. I would say the real big high because it very nearly went wrong would be Donington in 1990. I've written that down. Yeah, I lost my voice, you know, we didn't know if we were going to be able to do the show. I got the treatment we went on to the stage, you know, in front of God knows how many people and we didn't know if we were going to be able to do the gig. It was terrifying. But the fact that it, the voice came back, I think that's a major part of why the gig was so good. We were like running around like rabbits, you know, springing around the stage, so chuffed, full of adrenaline that everything was okay. Mm. It was a lot riding on it. You know, the promoter had been in told us we, he was going to announce three nights at Hammersmith and we just couldn't believe it. You know, we'd only been going about 18 months. So mm-hmm. it was very strange. Yeah. Um, and when it went well, there was a huge, huge kind of sense of relief. And not only that, you know, 
we had it away on our toes. So it was a big day. A lot of people I meet, even today, you know, they say, wow, I was there. It was one of those I was there moments. Was you know? there. I yeah, think that's yeah. fantastic that we, that we were able to be part of something like that. Yeah. So that's a bit, I think that's probably the biggest high. There's a, there's, there's, there's a noticeable, there's a noticeable bit, bit on your, on your video, video of that, that where you, where you Realise that you're okay, okay. and the yeah, voice, yeah. and you're smiling. That's it. It's right, at, right at the, after the first big note in "She's So Fine." Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's the realization. Well, it's going to be okay. I can do yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. We're laughing, and they all knew as well. You know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. was fantastic. I mean, it was a very, very, very big show. I mean, another big highlight was kicking a football on the stage at Wembley Stadium with Bon Jovi, 1995. <laughs> you know, I nicked the idea from Rod Stewart. He said yeah. he always wanted to kick a football at Wembley, and I thought. We could do that. We're playing with Bon Jovi. <laughs> so we got all our people to blow up loads and loads and loads of footballs. And at the end of our set, we kicked them all out into the audience. And we looked around at each other. Somebody took photographs and we just looked at the audience with all our footballs flying about. And we thought, I've kicked a ball, Wembley. <laughs> it worked out lovely. So, you know, those sorts of moments. I mean, they're only little skinny little things for other people, but they're very significant when they mean something to you. And what about the success of the first album, Backstreet Symphony in 1990? It kind of it kind of flew by. I'll be honest with you. It just flew by. We were so busy, kind of running around, running around the world, playing shows, doing interviews, making videos. It was it was like it was like trying to ride a motorbike with no no handlebars. <laughs> it was good though, you know. It, it no, it's been it's been fantastic. I honestly cannot cannot say that I would complain about any of it I think probably the lowest point was when we thought we were going to be playing in America what 91 we were going to be playing a big long tour with David Lee Roth and Cinderella the shows for our point of view were fantastic they're great big venues they call them sheds over there massive great venues three months you know, we shipped all our gear. We even shipped all our push bikes. You know, we were ready to embrace the whole three months. Hmm. And I think with about a week or so to go, our American manager rang up and said, um, unpack. And we said, why? And he said, there's this new music that's that's really got a grip on the radio over here. It's called grunge. So we said, what's that? And he said, basically, it sounds a bit like people who are very unhappy to be in a rock band. But people are loving it. And the radio stations are jumping all over it and they're not playing music like yours anymore. This tour is probably going to fold after a week and you'll get known as the house band on the Titanic if you're not careful. So don't come. And, you know, we were pretty heartbroken because we were ready for that, you know, and we never got the chance to do it. And I think in hindsight, maybe we should have found a way to just go over there and tough it out and play our own shows in our own way. Because we did play some shows in Canada and we had a week to kill before we did a show for a magazine in LA. And so we played, we got our agent to arrange some shows on the East Coast and some on the West Coast. And, uh, but they weren't, we didn't have to sell a ticket. They were just places that had an audience. They went there every Friday, Saturday night. Yeah. So we just kind of showed up, plugged in, did it. And we had the whole audience in a dressing room every night saying, who are you? Where can I buy your record? We love you. And we were just thinking, oh, the irony of this situation. You know, we've had a massive tour cancelled. A record company never really recovered from it. They just, because they had all those grunge bands signed to their label. Geffen. So suddenly we were 
we were a bit like kind of chewing gum on somebody's shoe at that point. You know, we'd gone from being really, re, you know, really kind of loved and pushed and supported to in the toilet just, yeah. just that quick. It's a harsh lesson in how it works, but you know, we never got a chance to do it again. We live in hope that we may still get the opportunity. You never know one day. Our, our records get released in America now, but yeah, yeah. it's so big. And, you know, I've said it before, if I meet Kurt Cobain, I'll kill him. <laughs> so finally, Danny, then, and thanks for catching up again. Um, after the tour, what for the future for Thunder? Uh, I think you'll deserve a bit of a rest, don't you? I think, yeah, but I think it's probably going to be a quiet summer. We've all got things. We've all got plans we want to do, places mm-hmm. you want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, after, you know, you know, just family stuff. You know, my daughter's going to have a baby. I've got a new dog. Uh I want to get a holiday yeah. you know uh you know i like walking i like climbing just basically just get away from the business for a little while and then sort of recharge and then get back into doing other things for next year you know we never stay idle for too long so it, it you can bet your life you know we start getting itchy after after five minutes no more self-deceiving the way i did before I know I'm not an island It's not about me anymore When I think of all I've wasted And everyone I turned away I never thought that I'd need someone around me way I do today Is anybody out there that can shine a distant light Can anybody share my pain Cause it's a heavy weight tonight Chasing all them rainbows To take responsibility But now I see it all so clearly Life goes on between your dreams Is anybody out there To guide me to the shore I don't deserve too much, I guess But it's all I'm asking for Oh yeah
Another extensive chat with the one and only Danny Bowes. My thanks to him for that. We heard, last one out, turn out the lights, was classic tracking. The Western Sky, One Day Will Be Free, and Raveling, Don't Believe the World, and Is There Anybody Out There, all from the new album, Dopamine. Now, if you'd like to win a copy of the album, Thunder have had a fairly stable lineup since they began in 1990, with Luke Morley, Danny Bowes, Gary James, or Harry James, and um, Ben Matthews, but have changed bass players. Can you name the other bass players? That's all you have to do. Rockshow at gtfm.co.uk if you want to win the copy of the album. Now, Terraplane, of course, were the band that uh, were forerunners to Thunder, consisting of Luke, Danny, uh, Harry James and bass player Nick Linden. They released a debut single, I Survive, in 1983 and signed to Epic Records, releasing a debut album in '86. They regrouped, of course, to form Thunder in 1989 under the guidance of guitarist Andy Taylor. Stephen Eastwood from Yates said, Can you play some Terraplane? So I thought rather appropriately, if you want to hear what they were sounding like before Thunder, this is from that debut album. It's called I Can't Live Without Your Love. <laughs> 